Lizzie, how you doing? How are you? Oh, very. All the better for seeing you. How's it going? Oh, it's so nice to see you too. Yeah. Look at you and your your very my, fancy my makeshift studio. studio. Yeah. Nothing but the best. Huh? Well, you've got fairy lights in yours. That's pretty good. Yeah, I've got a little bit of a little bit of a nice background. I don't yeah. even know if you can see me. Yes, you're quite. <laughs> it's like you've got a bit of Vaseline on the lens there. You're very sort of soft focus, I think. <laughs> So you guys can hear me okay? Yeah, we can, yeah. Is that good? Yes. All right. Wow. This is miraculous. Well, we then we can just start now. We've figured all that out. Just look at that. Oh, yeah. We could just begin. David Tennant does a podcast with Elizabeth Moss. Elizabeth, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. What a treat to see you again, albeit only over the interweb. I know. I'm so glad we finally got to do this. I feel like we've been talking about it for so long. I think you were maybe one of the first people we were going to get for this show way back. You You were on the first list, I think. Finally, we've done it. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, Sarah, our mutual agent, talking yeah. about the fact that you might do this and yeah. and telling me about it before it even started. Yeah. So basically yeah. what I'm saying is I'm responsible for podcasts. It's down to you. Yes. yes I think it was probably was sold on the recognize. promise of having you as a guest. <laughs> I think it would nothing would have nothing would have come of it without you. I don't. So think finally, so. we're so cashing that in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do. Of course, I do. Yeah. Um, so, Lizzie, when when people do as they do, they do they compile those lists of like the greatest TV shows of the century or the greatest TV shows of all time, and you've got. You've got West Wing, you've got Mad Men, you've got Top of the Lake, you've got Handmaid's Tale. You've got like four entries on those <laughs> lists, which is almost greedy, I'd say. And is that... Selfish. At the risk of uh, opening with a very impossible to answer question, what is the ratio of luck to judgment that has landed you <laughs> on the list of greatest television shows of all time four times? <laughs> I would say it's a uh, pretty probably 50-50 at best. <laughs> That's good though. That's all right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think because a couple of them I didn't have any choice in the matter in the sense of I was just auditioning for things and those were the the projects that I got, you know. So yeah. West Wing and Mad Men I just auditioned for and I was 17 and 23 respectively and I would have, you know, taken any decent somewhat decent yeah. job yeah. that I could have gotten. And and then the, the you know Top of the Lake and and Handmaids I had a little bit more uh choice in. Sure. You know. So are you aware of what it is that gets you magnetized to some to one thing and not to another? On a sort of really um, impossible to define level, I guess, you know, it's sort of one of those things, I don't know if you feel this way when you're picking what you do, but you just kind of feel it. And as sort of silly as that sounds, my thing is quite often, if I can't imagine, if I I hate the idea of somebody else doing it, if the idea of somebody else doing it, Fills me with rage and jealousy. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, and I start to think about who they're going to go to next and probably who they're going to talk. You know, I know the people that, I know the the group of actresses that we often like are oh, up to the same yeah. things, you know, and I'm like, oh, oh, 
oh, if they go to, you know, Rose Burn, I'm gonna buy, I oughta, you know. <laughs> Jealousy's a, gr- a great clarifier, isn't it? I it think that's really a very is. astute observation. Yeah. It really it is. It's the, it's kind of sometimes the thing that makes you go, oh, this this is actually something I really want to do. You know, it's a it's an it's not only that, but it, it that is part of it. The specter of Rose Byrne doing it instead. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I shall not allow it. <laughs> 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 Dude, I wonder if she feels the same. I wonder if you're on her list. I bet you are. I bet you're on everyone's list these days. She's probably a lovely, non-jealous person who's just would be happy for anybody to get a great role. She, <laughs> she is very lovely and she I'm sure she has great generosity, but I don't doubt for a second that jealousy is a great clarifier for Rose as well. I think that's <laughs> I think all actors will appreciate that and understand I that. I think so. I think yeah. so. Um, and the, as you get sort of older and wiser and mm. further along in the industry, mm. d- does that make those choices, because those choices are going to be more scrutinised, what Elizabeth Moss does next kind of carries more weight. Can you still separate out your instincts from what is, I don't know, expected of you? Is that a challenge or are you quite clear-headed? I think it is a challenge. I think you have to be aware of it, you know, uh, and not be crippled by it. I think that, yes, you're absolutely right. The older I get, the more things I do that are known by people, that yes, you do feel a little bit more pressure. You feel a little bit more, especially in, in television at this point. I, in television, I've, I've sort of, I've gotten myself into a real pickle because I kind sure. of really, what if you I do can't a flaw? mess up. No, be a disaster. <laughs> It'd be a disaster. First, I have to sort of now every time out of the gate make like this great television show that, you know. Sure. Which is a silly amount of, of pressure because not everything is going to be, you know, that. But I, I try to kind of not be crippled by that, I guess, and be fearless. You know, with Handmaid's yeah. Tale, I was not intending on doing another, you know, potentially long running show so quickly after Mad Men. It was only a couple of years, I think, at best. And I I thought, well, I'll give it a little bit longer. And then the show came along and this the scripts were so incredible that I kind of had to forget about my own preconceived ideas of what Elizabeth Moss would do next mm. and and just go, you know what, I love this. I believe in it. It's touched me and I and I want to tell this story. So your instincts actually triumphed over what was potentially sort of the clever thing to do. Yes. Oh, Rose Byrne was still involved. The jealousy of Rose Byrne was still a very big part of it. Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) She was there, ready to put a wimple on. Over my shoulder. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But you've been acting professionally since you were eight years old, right? Yeah. Yeah. Six, six, seven, eight. It's a bit unclear at the moment. And what 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 was your first professional gig? So my first my first real gig, I think I'd maybe done like a commercial or something before that, but my first real professional acting gig was I did this um mini series called Lucky Chances. Oh yeah. For and it was based on one of those like paperback you know, beach reads. I don't know if it was Daniel Steele or, but it was something like that. It might as well have been. Sure. And yeah. Yeah. And I played um, a little girl who has to find her mother 
um, face down dead in the pool. Wow. Yeah. That's your and, first and my scene? mother was played by Sandra Bullock. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. This is a great first job. <laughs> It was really great. And so I had to go out to the pool and, you know, scream at finding my mom dead in the pool. And I felt like that just really sort of set the tone for <laughs> the rest of my career. <laughs> <laughs> A life of tragic you know? heroines. Yeah, it really yeah. was like, okay, this is the kind of work. And I just kept doing that kind of work for the rest of my career. <laughs> yeah. And when you were going to auditions and stuff as a child, were your parents very encouraging? Were they pushing you or were you pushing yourself? My mom just kind of kept checking in with me and seeing if I wanted to keep doing it, you know? And it's not like, you know, especially when you're young or when you're not really doing a lot, it's not like I was on set every day or even going to auditions every day, you know, I would be in school and I went to ballet school and I was really into ballet and I thought maybe I'd be a dancer. And that was a much bigger part of my life than acting. Right. Um, Ballet, because I was in ballet every day. And so the acting thing was kind of just, you know, you go on an audition, you know, once a week or once every couple of weeks. It wasn't really that invasive in my life. So I think that my mom kind of just kept asking me, do you, you know, you still want to do this? And I clearly loved being on set and I, I loved acting and I had so much fun when I was on set. And so she kind of just monitored it, you know, from, from a safe distance and, and just kind of kept going, all right, still having fun. Great. Right. (laughs) But your parents are in music, right? Your mom's a harmonica player. And and your dad yeah. is a, your dad's a music manager, right? So correct, yeah. Presumably, the arts weren't a foreign land in your in your house, even if it was uh, from a slightly different discipline. Very much so. I think it would have been weirder if I had wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or something. Right. You know? Yeah, sure. It, it, it was such an artist's household, and my brother was a musician and is a musician. And, you know, it, it was, it was definitely, um, very bohemian in, it in was. that way. Okay. Right. Very laid back, rather yeah. anarchic. Oh yes. Very right. laid back. Um, everyone would be up till, you know, all hours of the night. There were instruments everywhere. Right pianos, keyboards, drums, guitars, every, there were always instruments and there were always people coming over at the holidays and everybody would pick up an instrument and play. And it sounds very hippy dippy now that you talk about it. <laughs> sounds great though. <laughs> it was, it was kind of great. It really, it was a real um, sort of artistic upbringing uh, that I, yes, I, I think that me going into acting was only a little odd because nobody else was acting in the family, mm. but everyone was like, all right, sure. So it was a happy childhood, presumably. It sounds it sounds idyllic. It does. It does sound idyllic. It was very normal. I mean, it, it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, you know, a sort of. I suppose that sounds like it was really. Um, like that wasn't happening all the time. Right. So there was still. It was still a conventional childhood as well. Yes. Yes. We we you know we still watch TV and cartoons and okay. went to school and okay. road bikes and stuff like that. And you mentioned the West Wing when you were only seventeen. Yeah. Presumably at that point it wasn't about what the gig was. You just needed to buy shoes and eat. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Totally. It really was. I just auditioned for it. You know, three times I think. Yeah. Um, and I never thought in a million years that I would get the part because I not I never got. Um, big things like that. So 
I I thought, oh, there's no way I was going to, I was going to get picked for that. And then I, and then I did. And yes, I was, it paid the bills for, for a few years, you know. How much did you get to see when you auditioned for it? Did you get like a whole script or just some pages or? I think I just got my scenes. And one of my first scenes was, I think it was actually the first scene that I shot was with Martin Sheen and I'm in, I'm in big trouble. And he gives me this gigantic three page Aaron Sorkin written monologue. Wow. And I just got to sit on this couch and watch Martin Sheen pace around the room in this White House set and deliver this Aaron Sorkin monologue. I mean, it was like, it was the craziest, coolest experience. I'll never forget it. Yeah. You first appeared in episode five. So presumably the show wasn't on air when you were auditioning for it. That's right. That's right. And I was on set shooting, um, another maybe episode six or something like that when I mean, it must've been a bit later when the show premiered mm. and we were um, like at the hour that it premiered, I was on set and we were doing one of those famous walk. Well, they became famous, those yeah. walk and talks through yeah, the halls yeah, yeah. Yeah. and which were so much fun to do. And I remember standing in the hallway and talking to some of the cast on set and everybody was so nervous. Sure. You know, because it oh, was so, premiering. So nobody knew this was this was a this was a slam dunk. No, not at all. And I I think if I'm correct, I don't think it was necessarily a slam right. dunk right away. It was a bit of a slow burn. And I remember everybody kind of thought it's too smart for network television. Yes, that sure. It's too complicated. The dialogue is too intelligent and there was nothing like that on TV. And so there was a general feeling of like, I really don't know how this is going to go. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Tell me about Aaron Sorkin, because I am, he was the showrunner. I, I am mildly obsessed with him. As you know, you know I'm an enormous West Wing fan because I've dribbled on about this to you before. Um, <laughs> so did you meet him at the audition process? I, I did. So it's funny, actually. I had a couple of auditions. And, you know, the first time you go in when nobody knows who you are, you audition for just like the mailroom attendant, you know. Right, sure. Uh, <laughs> and so I... I went to my third audition and I sat down, I had like two or three scenes to do. And I read with this man who I I didn't know. And then uh, I later found out that that was Aaron Sorkin and that I had actually read with with Aaron. (laughs) Did he not say, hello, my name's Aaron Sorkin? (laughs) I'm sure he said his name was Aaron. I probably was so nervous that... I probably wasn't even like listening or, you know what I mean? I probably was just like heart pounding, so nervous. But you were, you were only 17. So yeah, it, it wasn't your first job by any stretch, but it was the first job of that sort of scale, presumably that, the, that sort of production that you were on. Did you just think this is something out of the ordinary or did you think, oh no, all, all, all big shows are like this or did it feel different? 
Um, I didn't really have anything to compare it to, honestly. So I, I didn't know what it was supposed to be like. I'd never been on a big network show before. If anything, I think it must have been different because it felt because of the the writing. The writing was so unusual and so mm. different for anything that was on television. And it was just, it felt special. And I don't know if that's just in retrospect, looking back on what it became, I can say that. I mean, I suppose if it had been a disaster and canceled, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be saying that. We wouldn't be talking about it today. <laughs> no, we wouldn't. Quite. <laughs> so I don't know. There felt like a little bit of a crackle of energy in the yes. air. Yes. I, I went back on yesterday. I watched your first appearance in it. In episode five. Did you really? I did. I did. It's very sweet. You're making chili with Charlie. Yes. And it's this lovely little sweet scene. And I mean, I don't know. I don't know how far Aaron Sorkin planned ahead, but it looked like already he was planting a little seed that, you know, they're going to have a little thing. And then five minutes later, uh, Martin Sheen is addressing the room and and uh, doing one of those glorious speeches. And I'm in tears. It's just one of those. It's just got that. The power of the words is, uh, is glorious. <laughs> I know, I know. It was uh, it was truly such a special experience. And, you know, everybody was, it really taught me how you're supposed to act on that kind of a set and how you're supposed to be. Everyone was so professional and so kind. Right. And Martin Sheen led the way in that and really set the tone. And that all the other actors, Brad and Alice and Janney and Richard Schiff and John, the wonderful late John Spencer, you know, everyone was so nice to each other and they were so they were funny and treated the crew so respectfully and it just and worked really hard and it and it really taught me i obviously had no idea at the time i was going to go on to do so much television but it really taught me that, that oh that's how a set's supposed to be it comes down from the top and you are kind to the crew and you are respectful of everyone else and you know your lines and you don't mess up and it just taught me that that's how it's supposed to be but you have been acting as we say since you were since you were little but you didn't you ha you haven't had any kind of formal training as it were you've just kind of done it which is as, as probably a better training than actually going to drama school. Um, so have you <laughs> developed, have you developed, do you think, your own routine or process that you apply to each new job? Do you have a kind of, do you have your own technique, your own method? I think I have developed a sort of slipshod, um, messy method. It's very improvisational and, and it really depends on what the project is. So for something that like, you know, I'm playing a real person, you know, like surely like something that, you know, then I, I did a lot more research than I ever would have done before, read, a, you know, biographies and I listened to a tape of her and all this stuff that I never really done before. And then there's some stuff that I just, I think the thing that I probably do every time is I try to work really closely with the writer or the writer and director. Um, right. And go over every scene with them and talk to them about it and ask questions and, and get them to tell me about the scene and just listen. And I really try to mine the, the material as much as possible. Um, but I, I, it is very messy and it depends on, it just depends on what the project is. So it's instinctive. You work from instinct and, but very pragmatically, I think you're quite a pragmatic person, aren't you? 
Yeah, I am. I'm very pragmatic and I'm very like, I kind of, I suppose it is instinctive and I sort of take, I take what I need and what I can, what I can get about it and what I, and do as much thinking about it as I think I need to do and then forget about it. Right. So do you think you work off quite a strong bed of self-confidence? You know what you need and you know what you don't need. I guess so. I guess so. I think I just, I've, over the years, especially the last like decade, I've learned a lot of, a lot more about what, what my process is on set and what I need. And I find that so much of what I do is, is honestly instinctive and a last minute idea. And, you know, sometimes I find that I can think about something until I'm blue in the face and I can study it and study it, think about it and talk about it. But until I'm on set with the other actor in the costume, listening and feeding off of them, it doesn't really matter because then there's, there's going to be something else that's going to happen once you're there. Right. But that needs uh, that you, you need to have a belief in yourself to to be thinking, well, I'll, I'll, it'll work out on the day. I, I know I'll get there somehow. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. I wonder if growing up around people who were professionally creative gives you a sense of being allowed to be at that party. My 18 year old is now acting. And I went when I would go and see him in school plays because he'd grown up around actors. And there was another kid who went to the same school who'd also grown up around people who were in the industry. And when the two of them walked on stage, it's not even that they were necessarily better than everyone else. He was. But um, just (laughs) he just him and this other other kid, they just had a sense of going, I'm allowed to do this. This is a legitimate thing to do, which I think a lot of people who don't come through that sort of world can struggle to feel like you're allowed to be there and can can struggle with imposter syndrome, which I don't feel like you do. I I 100% agree with that. I think that's that's exactly right. I think that you know, as evidenced in your, in your son and and you know, anyone that has grown up in that kind of artistic creative family, you definitely do. You have an you're sort of authorized to explore something that is really kind of insane to try to do and is is as a you know, our, our industry and our business is so much chance and there's so much unknown. Yeah. And, you know, you can make a movie that you think is going to be the best movie ever made. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's slam dunk and it can go nowhere. And, and so I do think that they, yeah, you have an authorization kind of from your creative parents to, to go, I deserve to be at the party. I think that's a great way of putting it. Mm. Do you feel, therefore, that you don't have to suffer for your art? Because there's that version of acting has to be hard. But I don't get that from you. I feel that you you you're you you feel like if I can get there in a straight line, that's fine. Is that fair? <laughs> that's absolutely fair. A hundred percent. I I am um I'm not a method actor, as you know you know, and I sort of have a, I sort of have a like slight jealousy and admiration for actors who kind of like, you know, like your Daniel Day Lewis and your, your Joaquin Phoenix who, who, who just really goes so sure. well, deep it into looks, something. It looks so special, doesn't it? It looks so yes. kind of spiritual it, or something. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It lo- yeah. And, and they look like they're working so hard. So and hard. Like, so admirable. Sports yeah. so hard. And, you know, so I have that kind of like, oh, maybe I should do that and that'd be better. But I, I know that I would just get 
bored immediately. I, I just can't do it. I know that I would just, I'd spend one day acting like that character and living in that world. And I'd be so bored with myself. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, you, you don't worry about appearing fraudulent if it doesn't seem to cost you enough. Yes, right. exactly. That's exactly right. I just think that everybody has their, you know, everybody's got their own way of doing it and whatever, I guess, brings the story to life in the best way. But for me, I just, um, I don't know if it has to be that hard. Right. <laughs> when we worked together a few years ago, um, we did a very small scale British movie um, that filmed on an on an ex-pig farm. Uh in the depths of your, I was going to say a converted pig farm, but it was only semi-converted. It was still pretty much a pig farm <laughs> in the depths of Yorkshire, and uh, and it's interesting because when, when we worked on that on that movie, you were very easy, but delightful to be on set with, and never got grumpy or difficult or any of that stuff that one might oh, expect. No, 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 Phew. absolutely, uh, and highly motivated. But I do remember there was a couple of moments where you were very. You very specifically and in an entirely measured and thoughtful way uh, made it clear that you had a different creative idea to the one that may have been being suggested in that in that moment. Uh, and I thought that's <laughs> and you, you did it with absolute grace and absolute clarity. And I thought that was it was very impressive because you, you clearly had a very although you were very open to being encouraged to do different things and to trying different things, you, you still had a very clear sense of knowing what works and doesn't work for you. Do you. Have you always had that, do you think? Is that a fair assessment? I think that over the years, as you know, when you do work and people think it's good and, and you, you start to get a little bit more confident in your instincts and in, in the fact that you might be right about certain things. And it's never something of like, I had an idea that I was going to do it this way and I've planned to do it this way since I woke right. up this morning and on the drive-in, I have planned that this is how I was going to do the scene. And it comes from a place of which you probably feel as well and, and or saw when we were working together. It just comes from a place of something not feeling right or feeling like I can't do a good job at, at whatever it is that I'm being asked to do, you know? Or not, I don't understand it. And mm. I'm, I'm perfectly willing to try anything, but I have to kind of, I have to kind of understand it and, and, and feel it. Otherwise, I feel like I can't do a good job at whatever it is. So tell me how Mad Men came about. So Mad Men, uh, I was 23 and I was living in New York City um, because I did the opposite that everybody does in the States where everybody moves to L.A. Yes. and pursues a career. Now, why is that? Is that because New York suits you more than L.A., do you think? Yeah, I love New York. I've lived here right. for um, 18 years now. And right. it just it. I love the energy of it. I love the architecture. I love the the. Um, the culture of it, the museums, the, you know, the theater, obviously. I, I, I love the diversity of it. I just, it's more my speed, honestly, mm. you know? So I moved to New York to do a play off Broadway when I was 19. So I, I left LA where everybody was moving to and trying to do work and get into acting. And I went to the, I went to New York and got into theater, which was just the opposite of what you're supposed to do. Yes. Yes. <laughs> And I, and I went on, um, uh, I got this incredible script, the pilot, um, for Mad Men. I th think it was called Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. And 
it was this incredible part that I just fell in love with. Like sure. she had me hook, line, and sinker from the very beginning. I loved that character. And I auditioned a couple of times for it. And I remember that at the time it was like pilot season, right? Which is the you know time when sure. everybody auditions for pilots. And I there were two pilots at the time going around New York that were really, really special. And there was Mad Men and then there was this other one that was written by a quite famous writer. And I auditioned for both of them. And I remember going to the Mad Men audition and having such a great time and feeling like this character fit like a glove. And I was just, it was one of those really special and memorable experiences. And then I went and auditioned for this other thing. And I remember walking into the waiting room and there was just all the most beautiful people in New York. And everyone just, I just, I looked around and I'm and like gorgeous girls. And I just remember thinking, Oh God, there's no way I'm going to, there's no way I'm going to get this. But that was the one that everybody wanted to get. That right. was the, that was the, that was the big one. Cause it was on network television and ours was on AMC, which nobody knew what the hell that was. Well, it didn't make um, shows back then, did it? No, it, it, they just made movies and, yeah. and everybody called it A&E or, you know, it was yeah. just like, it, it, nobody knew what it was. So everybody wanted to get this other one and I was, and I wanted to get it too. And I thought, I'm never going to get this. They're going to hire some, you know, you know, attractive you know, skinny, beautiful woman, and I'm never going to get it. And, um, and I ended up not getting that. And I did get Mad Men. And that other show was canceled halfway through the season. Right. There you go. And Mad Men and Mad Men became what it was. And it was a good lesson for me. It really was. So, so in a sense, Mad Men felt like the consolation prize at the time. I hate to say that because it was a very, very, it was an incredible script. And it had, you know, these H, you know, everybody was coming off of the Sopranos and like, it was this, we made the pilot with the entire Sopranos crew on the Sopranos set at Silver Cup Studios. And it was, it had that about it, but it definitely felt like it was, it was one or the other at the time. Right. Yes. They were of equal importance. Right. These two shows. Yeah. (laughs) But it does take off. Uh, you, you uh, and you do you get nominated for an Emmy in two thousand and nine for the first of many. Uh, does that feel <laughs> is that does that feel like a big moment? Do you feel like oh my god, I've arrived? Yeah, it was kind of it was crazy. I mean, it's still crazy, honestly. I still I still any time I get nominated for an award as 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 fake as it may sound. Any time I get I get nominated for an award, I'm always a little bit like, well, that's nice. <laughs> Sure, sure. <laughs> you know, but, like, you know, that's, they think I did a good job. Well, that is, isn't it that nice? It's now not an, un- an uncommon occurrence for you. But back then, that first time, that must be like, oh, my God, this little, this little show that n- nobody thought had a chance in hell. And now I'm getting all yeah. dressed up and going to the Emmys. Yeah, and it was for Best Actress, too, which was really, I felt kind of like, I was only, I guess, it 2009, I'm not terrible at math, but I was, you know, young, and... It felt, it was incredible. It really was. It was a very, it was great going the year that I, I don't think I was nominated the first year. And it was great okay. going that year too. Like it was, right. you know, with the cast, like that was cool. Yeah. We were nominated and it was cool. Like, and we, I think we won and it was like, it was unbelievable. Right, right, right. But sure. I, also get, I get 
so nervous and I, and it's like, I, I get, I get anxious. I mean, I get butterflies in my stomach just talking about it. I get so nervous every single time. And, you know, I've lost far more times than I've ever won. And so sure. you have this feeling of this adrenaline and, and, and I don't know if, it, if this has ever happened to you, but I find that in the moment that they read those names out, when they read out your category, even if you think that there's no way you're going to win, even if you spent this whole time thinking there's no way you're going to win, in that moment, it's anyone's, it's like, it feels like it's anyone's ball game. In that moment, you're like, you're like, it could be me. It could of course, be well, it could. I mean, you know, you're in, you're you're down to the last four. It could. It's not an unrealistic yes. thing to think of. No, it feels like you've got a you know a one in five chance. Yes. And then the come down from that when you inevitably lose is just is terrible. The terrible thing about that is though you have got the the and again this sounds like a terrible cliche, but the act of being nominated is a wonderful sort of extraordinary thing. You are down to the last four, and yet in that yeah. moment when it's not you, you just feel like a fucking loser. Yes, it's exactly right. You're so happy, and this is incredible. You're one of four or five or six actors of the yeah. year. Yeah. Of, of 500 television shows. Which is great until they open the envelope and then you're just the one who didn't win it. And then you're just a fucking loser and you just yeah. didn't do a good enough job. Yeah, fuck you. <laughs> Go home and cry. My friends and I have a joke where we say, well, I guess I guess you just weren't good enough this year. <laughs> <laughs> of course, one of the things that made Peggy Olsen such a hit was that she came... She came to embody a kind of moment in time with regard to women in the workplace. You know, that, that was part of the story that Madman was telling. And she became something of a symbol for for sort of strong, ambitious women uh, in, in the modern day as well. Did that transfer as a sort of pressure on you playing that part? Did you feel the weight of expectation that you had to sort of uh, witness to that outside the job almost? Um, in a way, a little bit. I, I don't think I felt it as much as I felt it um, or feel it, I should say. It was nothing It was nothing to what you had coming. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was like, at the time, I think it felt like significant. And, and but now I'm like, oh, that was yes. nothing. Um, I think also I kind of kept, I don't know, you know, when you make things, you're in a little bit of a bubble sometimes. And, and I just thought of Peggy as this every woman. I thought of her as, um, you know, that, you know, that movie, Marty, the Ernest Borgnine film. Yeah, yeah. I always thought of her as Marty. I thought of her as just this regular person. And, um, I didn't think of her as, as a feminist icon or as, you know, a leader of a movement. I just thought of her as this, as an, as a writer and, um, a woman in the workplace and, and, so I kept I kept her in that bubble. So I didn't really feel that kind of pressure at the time, and it and it and it was a different time in the sense of it was before the Me Too movement and Times Up and everything. So mm. it was sort of this idea we used to. I mean, the women on the show we used to do interviews and Q and As, and it was so different than it is now because the interviewer would sort of think that they were massively intelligent and ahead of the curve and say, "Wow, so sexism in the workplace, right? I mean." this is a, this is a big deal. And, you know, we as women would be like, yeah, yeah. uh-huh. Yeah. That's a, 
that's a real thing. But it was like a, a thing at the time of like, can you believe how they used to treat women? <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> it was an interesting thing, wasn't it? That Mad Men felt like it had to go back to the 60s to, to point out some a, a truth about now. I suppose that's what drama has always done. But yes, indeed. Yeah. And then, of course, a few years later, as you as you said, as we hinted at, 2016, you're filming <laughs> season one of The Handmaid's Tale in Canada, and Hillary Clinton is not elected as the first female president of the United States. Um, and then suddenly what was uh, a very skillful TV adaptation of an 80s novel that was so, about a sort of fantasy dystopian future um, became vibratingly relevant. And by the time the first series was on air, women's rights, reproductive rights, civil liberties are being discussed and indeed threatened in a way that many of us never imagined we would see in our lifetime. And the unexpected relevance only, it only adds to the brilliance of that series. But but did that mean that you found when it came to promote that series and talk about that series, you were having, it was prescient in a way that you never predicted? It really really was and it was an interesting place to be because we were balancing not wanting to capitalize on what was going on in a way that was insensitive so there were these there were these gigantic relevant themes in the show but we were trying to also be really careful not to look like we were just using the political climate to promote our stupid TV show. So you had to really balance talking about the things that were relevant and, and, and very obvious while at the same time recognizing that we didn't intend for it to be that way. We weren't trying to, obviously this book was written in the eighties and um, it was incredibly prescient and, and, we were shooting episode four, uh, four and five at the time that um, Hillary didn't win. And I remember going to work the next day and Joseph Fiennes had to say one of the most incredible lines from the book uh, in the show, which is um, better never means better for everyone. It's always worse for some. And wow, yeah. it was a really intense life moment that I'll never forget. And so that was important to us to talk about. But at the same time, we didn't want to look like we were capitalizing on it for some some dumb show, you know? Yeah, sure. I, I, you've been quite candid, actually. Uh, I've seen you uh, talking about that that was a very steep learning curve and that you got it wrong a couple of times as you sort of tried to find where you sat in that space as an, an like you say, an actress in a show who suddenly becomes almost a symbol for a movement. Yeah, I got it wrong one big particular time. It was really interesting. We were doing a Q&A um, after the premiere of the show, the, of the first episode at, I think, the New York Film Festival or something like that. And we were all on stage, you know, 10 of us doing this Q&A and, and it was awkward and kind of were all having trouble hearing each other. And we were asked this question about, is The Handmaid's Tale a feminist novel? I think it was. And we all answered, but I said, you know, I said that I didn't think it, I said, I can't actually remember what I said, but basically I didn't say the right thing. And I, and I said that uh, I found it, that it was a humanist tale and it, it was a human story. 
Mm. And I got in big trouble for that, understandably. And I think that, and I had to clarify what I meant, um, which was clearly, obviously, that, of course, I'm a feminist. Of course, it's a feminist novel. And I just, what I meant was that I think there's stories for, you know, about all humans in it. And um, the learning curve was really, really fascinating because it was the moment that I realized that what I say people were listening to. And I just didn't know that. As silly as that may sound, I just didn't think like that. And like you said, I'm an actress, you know, I'm not a politician. I'm not, um, I'm, I'm an activist as a, as a citizen, but I'm, I, it's not my vocation. And so I had to learn kind of what the language is that you can can use your platform for and and that it actually makes a difference what you say and that people are listening and it was a really interesting interesting lesson and do you feel like you've embraced that uh that role as as the seasons have gone on do you feel more comfortable with it and does it feel like something you're you actively enjoy uh taking that role now yeah it does i mean i always try to kind of be um respectful of the fact that I am, you know, not a politician and I may not always have all the information. And, um, I try to, you know, make it clear if I don't feel like I'm educated on a particular thing that I don't think I can, I can speak on it. Um, but I think it's something I've definitely become more comfortable with over the, over the past few years and, and more, um, understanding that there are perhaps people who rely on you to use your platform to speak for them. And, and then there are people who don't like when you do that and you kind of have to get over that and go, all right, well, screw you guys. I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) Right. Okay. Because you're, you're, you're an active producer on the show as well, aren't you? So it's very, you know, it's, it's a, it's a huge part of your life currently and, Mm -hmm. and you're now Mm -hmm. directing an episode, right? Yes. Yes. I am directing episode three. Uh, uh, well, I was directing episode yes, three. I, st- I allegedly still am directing episode three. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're talking in uh, in sort of late May of 2020 when the world has <laughs> shut down for a while. So presumably by the time people listen to this, you may, you may well be back at work and directing again. And exactly. I, I, have you figured out what kind of director you're going to be? No, I don't know. So much like the acting, you're kind of winging it day to day. <laughs> yeah. No, they don't really want you to be instinctive too much on set. They kind of they kind of want you to have a plan as a director. Ah, I see. Yes, there you go. Um, very, very different. Um, I think what I found in my – I did two days, so I certainly cannot speak as a director. But I, I think what I found surprising to me was I was really nervous about talking to actors. Um, and I thought that I actually, I actually really love the visual stuff. I really do love the planning and I love the prep and I love working on the script and I, I love all of that stuff. And then I was kind of like, how the hell am I going to talk to an actor? I mean, I don't know what to say. You know, what if they, what if they want an idea and I don't have it? Or what if they think my idea is stupid? And how do I tell them to just, you know, do it better? And, you know, all of that. And, and then I had two days where I got to work with, um, uh, luckily I wasn't acting myself and I got to work with Joseph Fiennes, Max Minghella, O.T. Fegbenle, and um, Bradley Whitford, and these four men, these four incredible male actors. Sure. And it was one of the greatest days I've ever had on set. It was like having this, you know, chamber orchestra. 
to conduct. And it was such a joy to go in there and, you know, everyone's doing a great job. You're never telling anybody they're already doing amazing on their first take. So you're just trying to go in and tell them, I don't know anything to get the, you do something different or to get anything different out of them. And so you go in and you just kind of say one little thing or that little thing. And then you go back to the monitor and sit and watch. And you're like, and to see what they, how they took what you said and how they transpose it and and do it was just mind blowing. And so I, I was really surprising how much I loved that process. I didn't know, I didn't know I'd love it. Have you figured out how you're going to direct yourself yet? Will you have to watch every take back as you go or will you just know when you've nailed it? I think it's going to be a combination. I think it's going to be a real kind of flying by the seat of your pants experiment. You know, we have it set up so I can watch playback. Um, But I can't watch playback every time because we don't, you know, have endless amount of hours to shoot something. So I think a lot of it's going to be like... um, relying on my DP and relying on any other sort of onset producer to have a look and making sure things look okay. Um, and you know, I, I had, I had good advice actually from a director who's mentoring me, who's directing episodes one and two, Dana Reed, an Australian director. And she said, you need to do a pass through the script where you actually think about June as a director and not as the person playing June. Okay. And I thought that was really good advice that you actually then, you kind of have to put aside the actor part of you and go, if I was just directing this other person, what would I, what would I say? And what would I want from them? Um, so I have to do that. I haven't done it yet, but I'll do that at some point. <laughs> sure. You were in one of the last, I mean, possibly the last uh movie to make a lot of money at the box office before the world shut down in this slightly weird uh, moment we're in. Uh, The Invisible Man was a proper, like, jump-out-of-your-seat popcorn movie, albeit with a very human story at the centre of it. The big, shiny, multiplex movies, is that the next world you want, you're looking to conquer? Yeah, I don't know. I think that... um, I liked being able to do something that people saw, whereas a lot of the movies I do is, you know, very small audiences actually managed to see them. So it was nice to do something that people saw and was in the movie theaters and and had posters and all of that that you could see. Um, You were on the side of buses outside our house. Oh, was I? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Apologies for that. No, it was Um, great. But (laughs) I don't think I'll ever necessarily... um, approach things from that place. I, I just don't know how to. I think that I uh, I like to do things that people see, of course. I don't want to do things in just like a vacuum. But even that movie, even though that was a, a, a bigger sort of popcorn-y studio film, it still was, you know, about gaslighting and abusive yes, relationship. And, you know, still had these really dark themes to it. <laughs> Did it need to have that to lure you in? Yeah. I mean, I don't think, I I don't think it wasn't even like luring me in. I don't think they would have wanted me to do it if it wasn't that. Like when I, I remember them coming to me and saying they're doing a reboot of the invisible man. And I was like, okay. And you know, they're going to get the offer to be in it. And I was like, what? Okay. This doesn't make any sense. 
And then I read the script and I was like, oh, I get it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. I get why they want me to do it. <laughs> yeah. Fun though, I guess, right? All that running around and diving about. So much fun. It was so much fun doing the fight rehearsals and having to stretch before you do a scene, which is not something I usually have to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. but I'm ha- having to warm up before a scene was very fun and it was great. And it, the mechanical parts of it, I really liked and the visual effects parts were interesting. And it was, it was like a whole new experience. I usually just sort of sit around in a chair and blink. <laughs> <laughs> As one solitary tear dribbles down it, your cheek. Just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the amount of exercise I've had for the day. So yeah. it was, it was definitely a different experience. Well, whether by luck or judgment or a combination of both, you do seem to have a Midas touch with the projects that you've been involved in over the years. This is undoubtedly going to continue, but just say it didn't. Just say the fates <laughs> did something weird and Elizabeth Moss was finished as an acting phenomenon. Um, how would you be? How would you be in, in your apartment in New York with nothing I to mean, do? I'd be fucked. I'd be completely fucked. I don't have any other skills. I have no education. I have no formal education in anything. I didn't go to college or university. I I, I, I don't know how to do anything else. I mean, I'd be royally screwed. And if my career tanks after this podcast, I'm, I'm coming to the UK and I'm finding you. That's fine. I'm very happy to take the blame. We'll find we- this. This will be the marker. This will be when everything changed. I did that podcast with David, and then yeah. everything just completely went to shit. Well, we need a new cleaner. So if you, you know, if you're really desperate, <laughs> oh, I am quite good at cleaning. Actually, I bet you are. Well, you know, you're always welcome to clean in our house, Elizabeth Moss. <laughs> it's so kind of you. Thank you so much. So kind. Thank, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a joy. So nice to see you. So nice to see you too. Thanks for doing this. David Tennant does a podcast with is a Something Else and No Mystery production. Produced by Zoe Edwards. Additional production from Harriet Wells, Sarah Camlet, Steve Ackerman and Georgia Tennant. The sound engineer was Josh Gibbs. The executive producer is Chris Skinner. Next time. Donald Trump and Boris Johnson and Vladimir Putin, they don't know what power is. Power. Power is being able to get all of these Batmans to say what you want them to say and do Joker.